Um, okay, who are we liking? Uh, so, so today we are going to really, really rush through <coughs> four poets. Um, and <laughs> you look unhappy about that. Uh, okay, we don't have to rush through. We could just stick with one, but that would also be bad. There are pluses and minuses. Um, one thing we could do, well, one thing we could do is we could start with um, a good way to get into both Crashaw and Cooley um, by looking, now I've lost it, um, looking at Crashaw, it's going to be the end of his um, poems. This is not a poem you have, but I thought I'd bring it in. Um, a poem by Crashaw about Herbert. Um, so what happened was Crashaw read Herbert, um, was one of several younger poets who read Herbert and um, thought he was just amazing. So Herbert, in a lot of ways, was deeply, deeply influenced by Dunn, who, as I said before, was a friend of his mother's, a close friend of his mother's. Um, not that way, but a close friend of his mother's. I mean, I don't think that way. There's no reason to think that way. Um, and... Um, Herbert is influenced by Dunn, and then um, his poetry becomes very, very powerful for a still later generation of poets, um, of whom Crashaw is um, probably the best, um, although none of them is as good, is anywhere near as good as Herbert. Still, um, they're worth reading. At their best, they're worth reading. Um, Crashaw started out as um, one thing that you really have to start paying attention to now in a way that we didn't really have to pay attention to these things before are the religions of the poets that we're doing because a lot of this poetry is religious but it's also a lot of it is religious polemic. Um, so that Dunn, for example, um, moves from Catholicism to Protestantism. Um, Crashaw moves the other way. His father was violently anti-Catholic. Um, Crashaw ended up dying, um, converted. Um, he was converted um, to Catholicism, and he died in a basilica, which is one of the things that um, um, Cooley talks about. Cooley did not convert. Cooley was a Protestant. But then um, there were essentially two kinds of Protestants. Um, those who were radically Protestant, like Milton, um, and who regarded the other kind of Protestant, who were basically um, Anglican um, and supported the king in the English Civil War, um, basically saw them as crypto-Catholic, saw them as uh, not really Protestant at all, but um, on the verge of Catholicism and close to Catholicism, although with the king rather than with the pope as the head of the church, but still the structure of the church was authoritarian according to the, um, to the radical Protestants, sometimes called the Puritans. Um, so the Puritans were much more radical, that's why they came to America as well, were much more radical in their rejection of the Catholic Church. Um, the um, English church, the Church of England, um, founded by Henry VIII, um, when he broke with Rome, but founded pretty much on Roman Catholic structures, that is, um, archbishops, bishops, and so on, um, the English church was therefore, um, for some 
people regarded as um, a reasonable and um, um, beautiful middle-of-the-road way of not falling into the excesses of, of either side, the excesses that each side accused the other of. And for others, in particular the um, uh, Puritans, uh, was to be hated because it, it was um, practically Catholicism. Um, so Crashaw's father was um, on the Puritan side, strongly anti-Catholic. Um, Crashaw eventually becomes Catholic. Um, Cooley stays um, with the Church of England and is very forgiving, um, if that's the right word, very tolerant of um, Crashaw's Catholicism. He thinks it's the least important thing about a person is um, what kind of Christian they are. Um, however, Cooley hated the Puritans, and he hated them because he was on the other side of the English Revolution. Um, or because he hated them, he was on the other side of the English Revolution. Um, if you remember some of the uh, passages from, that are excerpted from his epic poem about the Civil War, um, remember how the mob of Calvinists takes over um, London in the Siege of London <coughs> section. Um, so um, for that reason, he's, he's quite tolerant of what he still thinks was a mistake on Crashaw's side um, in converting, but a noble mistake. Um, Milton is strongly anti-Catholic. Um, these distinctions are matter even for what we're going to be looking at today because they matter as to what the subject matter of poetry is. Um, in an interesting way that we'll get to. But at any rate, I wanted to uh, read you um, Crashaw's poem about George Herbert's book, The Temple, which all the poems we've read are from that book. Um, and so the title of this poem is, On Mr. George Herbert's Book, in Titled, The Temple of Sacred Poems, Sent to a Gentlewoman. So he sends a copy of this book to a gentlewoman, and, and he sends it with these complimentary verses. Know you fair on what you look. Divinest love lies in this book. Expecting fire from your eyes to kindle this his sacrifice. So you'll read the book, you'll read his poems, and the fire that comes from your eyes will make his poems take fire again. Um, the first poem in the temple, in, or in at least the main part of the temple, is a poem called The Sacrifice. Um, it's also the longest poem in the temple. And so um, what Crashaw is doing is making a little joke there, that it's the sacrifice is the um, book itself, Sacrifice to God, but also the poem called The Sacrifice. Um, when your hands untie these strings, that is the book comes bound up, um, tied up in strings. When your hands untie these strings, think you have an angel by the wings, one that gladly will be nigh to wait upon each morning sigh, to flutter in the balmy air of your well-perfumed prayer. These white plumes of his he'll lend you, which every day to heaven will send you. That is, um, he, Herbert, will lend you the white plumes of the angel, which will bring you to heaven every day, to take acquaintance of the sphere and all the smooth-faced kindred there. And though Herbert's name do owe these devotions, that is, um, although these devotions um, 
own Herbert's name. Uh, they're Herbert's. He wrote them. Uh, remember the beginning of denial, when my devotions could not pierce thy silent ears. Um, though Herbert's name do owe these devotions, fairest, know that while I lay them on the shrine of your white hand, they are mine. That is, so something really interesting is going on here, um, which says something about what religious poetry is. Um, it's public in a way, offered to the public in a way that love poetry isn't quite. Love poetry is poetry that we may want to quote and memorize and um, um, use for our own, make our own, but in the first place we talk about Wyatt's experience with Anne Boleyn, let's say, or Surrey's experience, or Dunn's experience, or Astrophil's experience. That is, love poetry is, um, tends to be poetry where someone is telling us about his or her experience of love in a particular situation, um, love for a particular person. Where do we think that's happening? Do we think that's in another classroom? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a very unfortunate. Let me just see if that's a class. It probably is, but... Maybe we should go outside. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. <laughs> okay. So, what Crashaw is saying? Do you want to say what Crashaw is saying? No, I was just at wonder. So. If your point is that love poetry is subjective first and then able to be identified with second, yeah. why isn't one person's relationship with God the same way? Well, because what it is, it, it is but not the same way, which is to say that if you write a poem about how much you love Stella, mm -hmm. and then I read that poem and say, gosh, I love Stella just as much. I'm going to take this poem for myself in order to express how much I love Stella, you'd be right to be pissed off. Um, uh, that, that is, it's, it's um, the poems are always poems that we witness, first of all. Um, Astrophel loves Stella. Um, if we we may come to understand why Astrophel loves Stella. He may convince us that Stella is really beautiful and worthy to be loved. But we don't feel that what he's doing is offering us a way to be in his position and love Stella too. Um, if we um, in some way assimilate, as we do, love poems or love songs. I mean, you know, when you're in love, love songs come to mind. And um, some seem to speak to or for or about how you're feeling and what you're going through. Um, but not about the same person, about an equivalent person, but not about the same person. Religious devotions are about the same person, that is God. And so there's a huge difference there in the sense of um, 
how personalization works. Love poetry is personalized in its very nature. There are many objects of love and many people to love those objects of love. And anyone who expresses that is expressing um, something that, more, that usually more or less default uh, mode desires um, a, um, um, an exclusive relationship, an individual relationship, an exclusive relationship. Not always, but that's the basic mode. Whereas devotional poetry is poetry which is trying not only to get other people to love the same person because it's now you'll understand why. You know, you, you don't read Herbert and say, think that what he's saying is, I really want you to understand why I love God. Whereas you do read Sidney and you think, I really do want you to understand why I love Stella. Um, love poetry does, they both proselytize, you could say. But love poetry proselytizes because it's just part of the experience of love for a lot of people to want to be going around saying, God, that person is great. Here's why I love them. Um, whereas it would be weird to think of Herbert going around saying, oh, man, you know, God is just so cute. And he's just got that cute little button nose. And, you know, that's why I love him. Plus, he's virtuous. Um, and that's, the, that's, a, that's an important difference. So if you look now at what I handed out last time, does anyone need the um, Cooley's um, on the death of Mr. Crashaw? Um, oops, but I only have one copy. I didn't realize. I thought I had several, but can you look on? Um, <coughs> sorry about that. So Crashaw dies, and he writes him this poem. Poet and saint, to thee alone are given the two most sacred names of earth and heaven. Um, so what are those two most sacred names? Poet and saint, yeah. Poet and saint, to thee alone are given the two most sacred names of earth and heaven. He's both a poet and a saint. Already an odd mixture is what Cooley is um, um, asserting. The hard and rarest union which can be next that of Godhead with humanity. So being a both a poet and saint, that's about as hard a thing as you can find in the world. There's only one thing that's harder, which is what? Next to, yeah. Yeah, the only, the only harder thing is Jesus. That is the union of Godhead with a human existence. So that's the incarnation. Long did the muses banished slaves abide and built vain pyramids to mortal pride. So um, the muses um, spent a lot of time with poets, but what they weren't were saints. So the muses used to spend, for a long time, they spent their time with poets who were banished slaves, banished from heaven. Long did the muses banish slaves abide and built vain pyramids to mortal pride. Like Moses, thou, though spells and charms withstand, has brought them nobly home back to their holy land. Excuse me, I'm going to, I'm going to um, change my mind about what long did the muses banish slaves abide. Abide there means um, not tolerated but lived. Um, that is, for a long time the muses lived as banished slaves. 
and because they were slaves like the children of Israel, they built vain pyramids to mortal pride. So long did the muses banish slaves, abide, and built vain pyramids to mortal pride. So the muses were enslaved and um, dragooned into secular poetry, into the Iliad and the Odyssey and things like that. But you, like Moses, thou, those spells and charms withstand. Spells and charms would be just the pleasures of a, of a kind of incantatory, magical poetry, but not a divine poetry. Like Moses, thou, those spells and charms withstand has brought them nobly home back to their holy land. So the muses have been brought back to the holy land, um, to Canaan, through, out of slavery, um, through the desert, and back to the holy land. Um, so that's a great thing that Crashaw did. Um, hard and rare union, that's a kind of definition of metaphysical poetry, that is, bringing things together. As Dr. Johnson will say, as I mentioned before, he describes metaphysical poetry as um, full of in imagery or conceits in which things are yoked by violence together. So that's what um, a hard and rare union might be. And Crashaw sure does a lot of yoking by violence together, I think you probably noticed reading his poetry. Um, but Cooley is basically saying that's because of the kind of poetry he's trying to write, um, which is to bring all this stuff together. So Crashaw contrasts with us. Ah, wretched we, poets of earth. So the rest of us are poets of earth. And that's a bad thing. Um, ah, wretched we, poets of earth. But thou wert living the same poet which thou art now. So what does that mean? What is he now? An angel. An angel and a saint. And when he was alive, was his poetry different from the poetry he's uttering in heaven? No. So the point is that even on earth, um, there was nothing about his poetry that wouldn't have been the same as the poems the angels sing in heaven. Whilst angels sing to thee their airs divine and joy in an applause so great as thine. So you're now up in heaven and you're still the same poet you were and in the meantime angels are singing their own po poems to you and you applaud them. And they're delighted that a poet as great as you thinks their angelic songs are, are worthy of applause. Equal society with them to hold Thou needed not make new songs, but say the old. So if you wanted to be as great as the angels, you didn't have to invent new poems in heaven. All you had to do was recite what you wrote on earth. And they, kind spirits, shall all rejoice to see how little less than they exalted man may be. So exalted man, like you, is only a little bit below the angels. Um, angels are superior beings to humans but you were only slightly inferior. Um, Paradise Lost is going to have Satan say the same thing of Adam and Eve. Um, Earthborn, perhaps, Satan thinks when he first sees them, 
but to yet to heavenly spirits bright little inferior. So here he's almost as exalted, even when he was on earth, he was almost as exalted as the angels are in heaven. Still, the old, the old heathen gods in numbers swell. The heavenliest thing on earth still keeps up hell, nor have we yet quite purged the Christian land. Still idols here like calves at Bethel stand, and though Pan's death long since all oracles broke, Yet still in rhyme, the fiend Apollo spoke. So that's a pretty harsh thing to say about earthly poetry, about secular poetry. That it's true that no one believes in the Greek gods anymore. It's true that the um, oracles have ceased. That's a famous moment called the cessation of oracles, which is um, felt to be the triumph of Christianity in medieval lore. Um, when oracles no longer spoke. Um, they seem to be defeated, but the heathen gods are still everywhere if you just look at mortal poetry. You will see um, that there are references to the myths everywhere. The stories are all mythological stories. Apollo is somehow still the god of poetry, even though um, in any other context no one still believes in Apollo. So most poets, poets of earth are blasphemers. Um, and that's where the rest of the poem, or that's, that's the direction that he's going to bring the rest of the poem now. Why is most poetry blasphemous? And the answer to that question is what matters. Um, nay, with the worst of heathen dotage, we, vain men, the monster woman deify. So, I mean, we all agree with that, right? Let's just keep going. Um, so what's he saying there in this, um, I will hasten to say a vilely misogynistic couple, couplet, not couple, couplet. Yeah. That men are devoting poetry to women yeah, and what monster woman in particular is he thinking of? What color would she be wearing? Scarlet, maybe? <laughs> yeah, that if you're writing po poems to women, it's like the Whore of Babylon. Um, that is, it's the very idea that you would use this um, potentially divine gift to write poems to women is utterly, utterly blasphemous because only God should be praised. Um, and so that woman is a monster, and the monster woman is the whore of Babylon in Scarlet, etc. Um, yeah? Was Cooley married? Um, I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. Um, okay. But all he's doing is, is producing a witty compliment to Crashaw so that Crashaw will appreciate it in heaven. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it is, it is. Um, That's how they talked. <laughs> no, they didn't. But um, <laughs> see this as being about poetry rather than about gender. I mean, it is. Um, but what that tells you is that there are different kinds of poetry and, the ki and, and religious poetry may 
at least for some people, um, be uh, oppressively masculinist. I, I lost track in your map. Was Is Cooley uh, on, the, on the Protestant side or the Catholic side? Cooley is Church of England. He's a, he's a royalist Protestant. Okay. So, so this wouldn't also be like a Virgin Mary comment? Well, it's a, there's about to be a Virgin Mary comment, yeah. Okay. So, look, what Cooley is doing here in a kind of offhandedly misogynistic way, that is, um, insulting women is just not an issue. And so if you can use it in a poem, um, who's going to object, really? Um, none of his male readers. <coughs> um, so it's... What he thinks, and what, in order to understand what he's saying, we have to at least know what he thinks he's saying. Uh, what he thinks he's saying is um, giving a description of different kinds of poetry. And um, the way to do that is to say there's divine poetry and there's the other kind of poetry. And one, um, one hallmark, a touchstone for knowing which kind of poetry we're dealing with is to look at whether the poetry is about God, which would be divine, or the opposite of that. And what would the opposite of that? People, except for Milton, don't write poems about Satan. They write poems about women. Um, so either God or women becomes the choice. And that's a structural choice imposed on him. I mean, I really think what he wanted to do was to say, um, this is a totally different kind of poem. Um, in order to bring the contrast out, I have to make, I have to put everything into opposition. So he didn't write this poem and say, God, women, I hate them. I'm going to write this poem about Crashaw. It's that he said, God, Crashaw is writing about, or, or um, land's sake, uh, <laughs> Crashaw is writing the, these um, this utterly divine poetry, um, how can I bring out what's so divine about it? Well, um, I'm going to spend a lot of time saying what he refuses to do and why it's so good that he refuses to do it. And one thing he refuses to do is write about women, and that's good too because, oh, I know, because women are monsters. Um, and then this can get me into a contrast with um, the one woman who's definitely not a monster, which is the Virgin Mary, whom I want to bring into this poem because that brings in the question of Crashaw's Catholicism. Um, that is to say, the do people know? I mean, the basically more religious history. Um, do people know? If I use the word Counter Reformation, do people know what I'm talking about? Okay, if I use the word Reformation, do people know what I'm talking about? Okay, so the Reformation is the Protestant rejection of um, Catholic Church um, authority and Church doctrine. And one of the things that was extremely appealing to people about Protestantism of different um, orders, but still very appealing to people about Protestantism, is that it took the individual um, person extremely seriously. What Protestantism said is every person's conscience is equal before God. Um, you are not, there isn't a church authority with people who have um, the power to um, um, interpret and um, know what God wants and what God means and have authority that derives from God. In Protestantism, in its purest forms, no one has any more godly authority than anyone else. And what you, um, to be saved, 
um, what you have to do is consult your own conscience and your own understanding of the word of God. Um, yeah, people can help you with that if you ask. Um, they can help you by discussing the meaning of biblical verses, let's say. But if the Bible says one thing and a priest or prelate says, no, you shouldn't, it doesn't really mean what it, what it looks like it means. Um, it means that what you should do is give money to the church. Um, the fact that an authority has told you that is of no authority for you. Um, so the appealing thing about Protestantism was and is for many people um, the tremendous amount of respect that it gives to individual experience um, and the tremendous amount of um, uh, sense that individual experience is ultimately what matters and that um, each person has freedom of conscience to decide for him or herself what should matter. Um, Milton, as you'll see, um, one of the two of the great things Milton did as a political figure, um, forgetting any of his great poetry, um, in some sense maybe more important than anything he did as a poet, was he wrote the first really great um, philosophical defense of freedom of speech. And um, so our First Amendment derives directly from um, a tract called Areopagitica that Milton had written 140 years earlier, um, where he said that there should be no prior restraint on what the press does, um, that it doesn't matter if people publish lies, um, that freedom of speech or freedom of the press, actually, um, is an absolute value in itself. Um, so Aripagitica, basically, before Aripagitica came out, um, if you wanted to publish something, you had to get it licensed by the government. The, the government had to look at it and say, okay, you can publish this, sort of like um, the FCC on broadcast TV. Um, Milton published Aripagitica without licensing it, which could have put him in serious trouble. Um, and in it, he called for freedom of the press. And it was hugely influential and powerful, and it's a very powerful argument. And that's, again, individual freedom. It doesn't matter if people are wrong. They are free to be wrong. The individual is free to say whatever he or she wants. The other really radical thing that Milton did, and he was a person who was, a, who was um, in his personal life, um, he regarded himself as intensely devoted to God um, and wrote Paradise Lost as part of that devotion. Um, he wrote a work called The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce. And he said divorce has to be legal. And this despite the fact that St. Paul said, if you're married, that's for life. And here's Milton saying, um, yes, nevertheless, there has to be the possibility of divorce. Um, why? Because if people are miserable with each other, if one person is miserable with another, you cannot force them to stay together. If a wife is with an abusive husband, he says, she has to be, have a way to leave him and not to be his slave for the rest of his life or the rest of her life. Um, if people can't live together, and he makes a really elegant argument 
He says, yeah, marriage is forever. And the sign that it's not marriage is if it's not forever. That is, if people can't stand each other, then how can you say they're married, that this is a real marriage? It's not. And so um, think of that amazing title, The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce. So divorce is a discipline. Divorce is, um, is itself something that you um, think through and work out the meaning of. Um, so Protestantism is really strongly for individual experience. So the Counter-Reformation um, attempts, attempted, succeeded um, to um, a large extent, um, to offer Catholic believers something like the same um, powerful appeal to personal experience that um, the Reformation first offered. So the Counter-Reformation is um, the Catholic Church itself taking on some of the ideas of individual, of the, of the sanctity and respect for the individual that was so important to Protestantism. And one way that it did that was through um, the cult of the Virgin. So the idea was that um, the Virgin was a person who um, suffered because of the suffering of someone else. That is, you look at her, and what she does is she cares about so much about what's happened to her son. And she cares as a human being, you could say. Her caring is human. Um, Jesus suffers on the cross and also dies for our sins and, and um, suffers for the fact that we've sinned. But Jesus is perfect. And in that perfection, there's a sense in which we feel like nothing. Um, with the virgin, what we feel like, here's a human being whose son has been executed. Here's a human being who feels for the pain of all human beings. She feels for my pain. She intercedes for me. Um, so the Virgin Mary was a huge part of the Counter-Reformation because she humanized a religion or humanized um, a relationship to God and to the church and to transcendence that um, in a way that was um, intensified, strongly intensified in the Counter-Reformation. And that's what Crashaw is also doing and what Cooley is about to get to. Um, so um, he says, nay, with the worst of heathen dotage, we vain men, the monster woman, deify. Um, and here he means in particular, I think, Ovid. Um, Yael, have you read Ovid's Amores? Or yeah. So um, what are they like? It's just like a silly poems about how to get women, uh, how to keep women, and then there's a whole section for women on how to get men, like wear makeup, make sure you shower. Bathe, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, subtle really stuff. Silly, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, were re they became really important in the medieval in medieval ages when, when people tried to say they were actually allegorical. Um, 
But the point is that, yeah, there are lots of um, secular poems that are not only about love, but about um, celebrating sex of all sorts and, and deifying sexual experience. And Ovid was the most notorious of such poets. If you, would, if you took Latin, you probably know this, but if you took Latin before around 1940 or so, um, Latin books in, that schoolboys used in English public schools um, would have the dirty parts um, excised, but it was also felt like this was not really a good thing to do because these were great poets, even though they had these dirty sections. So they tended to be put in appendices um, in the Latin books, and boy, did a lot of kids learn Latin fast, given the fact that they knew just where to go in the book to read the dirty parts. They were all together. <laughs> Um, no, it's true. They were just all together, the appendix of dirty parts. Um, and they really are dirty. I mean, if you read uh, Ovid or Catullus, um, you'd be shocked. Um, you'd be shocked at some of the things that, that, that they knew how to do 2,000 years ago. Um, not a modern invention. Um, so, um, the worst, that's the worst of heathen, heathen dotage. And now we do the same thing. We, vain men, the monster woman deify, find stars and tie our fates there in a face, and paradise in them by whom we lost it, place. What does that mean? Yeah, so we put paradise into, we think that women are the very paradise that we lost because of women. What different faults corrupt our muses thus, wanton as girls, as old wives, fabulous. So, not fabulous in the um, queer eye for the straight guy sense, um, but fabulous as in full of fables, full of nonsense. Um, did you know that fabulous is the adjective from fable? When you talk about a fabulous place, that, could all, that would be a place that only exists in fable, that isn't real. Um, so look at how we write poetry. Um, we write it to women as though that's where we should be putting all our attention and all our love. Thy spotless muse, unlike our muses who are wanton as girls and fabulous as old wives, thy spotless muse, spotless, how would you say that in um, Latin? in a Latinate word. You know in English that there are frequently um, two, wor two different words for everything um, because some come from Anglo-Saxon and then there are also their Latin synonyms. Um, so how would you say spotless if you're using a Latinate word? Yeah. No, clean is, is uh, I think it's Anglo-Saxon, although I'm not positive. It might be related to clarity. Yeah. No, it literally means spot, spotless. So not spotted, does that help? What's a Latinate, how do you say not in Latin? If, in a, in a, like if you say, I don't know, incomplete, what does that mean? Not complete. Not complete, and what part of that means not? Okay, so spotless, not spotted, not having any spots. What would the first letter be? Come on, come on. I, good. I what? 
or it could be M because before certain letters, N turns to M, like impossible. <laughs> yes, immaculate. Immaculate literally means spotless. That's the Latin word for spotless. Um, so where do we often see that word, this word immaculate? Yeah. So thy spotless muse, like Mary, did contain the boundless Godhead. Um, how did Mary contain the boundless Godhead? Well, we already know. Yeah. Um, and so contain the boundless Godhead, a really interesting idea that something which is uncontainable is nevertheless contained within Mary and within your muse um, because your poems were entirely divine. Thou, thy spotless muse, like Mary, did contain the boundless Godhead. She did well disdain that her eternal verse employed should be on a less subject than eternity. So your muse wouldn't allow you to write your verse on anything less than eternity itself. And for a sacred mistress, scorned to take but her whom God himself scorned not his spouse to make. So who's the only sacred mistress for your muse? Mary, Mary yeah. Um, she, did, she scorned anyone except the person whom God didn't scorn to make his own spouse. It, in a kind, her miracle did do, that is, um, this subject, did her miracle too. A fruitful mother was and virgin too. So your muse was both mother and virgin. Uh, mother because it produced all this poetry. Virgin because none of that poetry was about carnal desire. How well, blessed man, did fate contrive thy death and made thee render up thy tuneful breath in thy great mistress' arms, thou most divine and richest offering of Loretto's shrine. So Loretto, anyone been there? It's interesting. Loretto is where uh, Crashaw died. Um, he, he lived there and there's a priest um, who he was devoted to there and he died in Loretto. In Loretto there's a um, shrine to the Virgin. Um, it is, it's actually a basilica to the Virgin. Um, it's an extremely holy place because it's actually um, the Virgin Mary's house in Nazareth. Do you know about this? Yes. Go on, say more. Um, I can't remember exactly what they call it, but it's, at some point the house was lifted bodily up um, yeah. from Nazareth and moved to Loretta. Yeah, the angels picked up the house in, the, in medieval times, I forget what year. But there it was in Nazareth, and, they, and there was a basilica built over it in Nazareth. But then one day, they all came, and they picked up the house and flew with it to Italy and brought it to Loretto. And so that's where he died, in the Virgin Mary's house in Loretto, Italy. Um, and in fact, the, um, uh, the saint at Loretto, um, whose name I now don't remember, but the saint at Loretto, in the 1920s was declared by Pope Pius IX or whoever it was, the patron saint of air travelers. Um, and you can see why. Um, so that's where he died, in Loretto's shrine. Um, 
where, like some holy sacrifice to expire, a fever burns thee and love lights the fire. Um, so I just don't know whether Annalisa is here today, but um, this would be another Southall moment. Um, so he burns in fever, he dies of a fever, and um, Cooley is making that a fire lit by love because he's um, filled with the love of the Virgin. Angels, they say, brought the famed chapel there. So that's um, bringing the Virgin's house from Nazareth to Italy. Angels, they say, brought the famed chapel there and bore the sacred load and triumphed through the air. It's lines like that which make you realize that Cooley is not quite the poet that um, <laughs> some of the poets we're reading are. Um, and bore the sacred load and triumphed through the air. To sure much they brought thee there, and they and thou their charge when singing all the way. So that's the Protestant um, response to Catholic mythology. That is one thing that Protestants don't believe in is the miraculous intervention of saints. Um, that's the, they regard that as um, um, counter to the interiority and introspection, which is what Protestantism is all about. Um, so the idea of miracles and doing things because of miracles, that's something that Protestants are, are tend to be against. So here's this miracle that the angels are carrying this, this thing from Nazareth all the way to Italy. And he says, no, what makes more sense is to say that the angels brought thee there. How? Not literally by flying, um, like at the end of the Master Margarita. Not literally by flying, but um, you were their charge. That is, um, the word charge means both a weight, as in um, you're overcharged with, um, with work, means you're weighed down by it. Um, so, so charge literally means a weight. Um, but here he's taking that literal meaning and saying, but of course I mean metaphorically, um, you were who they were charged with um, taking care of. And so they brought you there by inspiring you to go there, singing all the way. Um, so that's a kind of Protestant... Um, demonstration of how to take a Catholic story and personalize it, make it both credible as opposed to miraculous in the contrary to physics sense of miraculous, make it credible and also make it deep while using the same vocabulary, the vocabulary of carrying something heavy. Then he turns to the Protestant church, pardon my mother church, if I consent that angels led him when from thee he went. So if I say that you know he left England, went to France, went to Italy, left the English church, went to become a Catholic, and now he says, I just said angels brought him there. Pardon me, mother church, my own church, for saying that. Um, if I say angels brought him there, because here's what matters. For even in error, sure no danger is when joined with so much piety as his. So he was wrong, says um, 
Cooley to leave the Protestant church, but he still loved God and believed in God. And so even though that was an error, it's not a dangerous error that he committed, not, an er not a damnable error. Ah, mighty God, with shame I speak and grief. Ah, that our greatest faults were in belief. If only that were the case, that the worst thing we did was believed wrong how much better the world would be if that's the worst thing we ever did was believed in the wrong God. So that's a pretty good thing to say. Um, something I think, I hope we can all get behind. Ah, mighty God, with shame I speak in grief. Ah, that our greatest faults were in belief. And our weak reason were even weaker yet rather than thus our wills too strong for it. So it's not a question of what we believe. It would be fine even if our weak reason, we don't know what to believe, we don't know what's true, we're just humans, we're limited, our reason is limited. And it would be fine if our reason was even more limited as long as our wills didn't keep doing what they do, which is overrun reason. The problem is not in our reason, weak though it is, but in our wills, our desires, our appetites, our violent tendencies, our sinfulness, despite reason. It's not reason, it's the will that's the problem, he says. Um, his faith, perhaps, in some nice tenets might be wrong. Nice there means uh, what? Anyone know? Yeah, delicate, good, um, and therefore also trivial. That is, subtle. Um, he might be making subtle mistakes, um, but so what? Um, they're not major. So his faith, perhaps, in some nice tenets might be wrong. His life, I'm sure, was in the right. And I, myself, a Catholic, will be so far at least great saint to pray to thee. So um, he was wrong to be a Catholic, but it's really, that's very minor. And to show you how minor it is, I'm going to say that I would be a Catholic at least to pray to him because I'm sure he's in heaven. And praying to a saint is to be Catholic. Protestants don't do that. But I'm so sure he's in heaven that I'm willing to make the same mistake and pray to him. Hail, bar triumphant, and some care bestow on us the poet's militant below. Um, that's because there's the church militant, which is the church on earth, and the church triumphant, which is the church in the afterlife. Hail, bar triumphant, and some care bestow on us the poet's militant below, opposed by our old enemy, adverse chance, attacked by envy and by ignorance, enchained by beauty, tortured by desires, exposed by tyrant love to savage beasts and fires. Thou from low earth in nobler flames didst rise, and like Elijah mount alive the skies. So there you have um, a four-line description of what poets undergo and what they write about, adverse chance, that is bad luck. But also, actually, the pure randomness of what words rhyme with each other. That is, if you're a poet, your art is the art of chance. If you're a poet, then you take things that are arbitrarily or purely randomly have 
the poetic features that they do. Writing prose is, seems to be easier than writing poetry. T.S. Eliot, who um, wasn't very funny, but did have a little bit of wild inversion in him, um, talked about the fiendishly difficult art of prose. Um, but part of what makes it so fiendishly difficult is that it doesn't seem difficult when compared to poetry. For Eliot, it was more difficult, or at least he was claiming that it was. But it doesn't seem difficult compared to poetry. What's difficult about poetry, as compared to general human expression, general use of language, is that you're paying attention to aspects of language which have nothing to do with their meaning, with how you use language to mean. So if you're rhyming, the rhymes are given to you by a language, but have nothing to do with what you might want to say. It's pure chance that glove and above rhyme. But if you want to rhyme, if you want a poem with that rhyme, you have to do something with that thing that's given, that's thrown at you by the pure chances of language. So that adverse chance, um, is partly what poets have to face, not only in their lives, but in their writing. Attacked by envy and by ignorance, that is um, where they're attacked in their lives. Enchained by beauty, that is poems about beautiful women. Tortured by desires, um, here again he might be thinking of Sydney, but ah, desire still cries. What does desire still cry? Feed me. Yes, give me some food, good. Um, exposed by tyrant love to savage beasts and fires. Thou from lone, low earth in nobler flames didst rise, and like Elijah mount alive the skies. Elisha-like, but with a wish much less, more fit thy greatness and my littleness. Lo, here I beg, I whom thou once didst prove, so humble to, ex to esteem, so good to love. Not that my spirit might on me doubled be, I ask but half thy mighty spirit for me. So does anyone know what the reference there is to Elijah and Elisha? So Elijah goes straight to heaven. Everyone knows that. Um, he goes to heaven without dying. Um, he sometimes comes to earth, which is why um, some of you will leave a cup for him and the door open next week. Um, after he leaves earth, um, he says goodbye to his disciple Elisha. And when he goes to heaven, Elisha takes over and says, I have the spirit of Elijah twofold, doubled. That's what, um, that's in the book of Kings, I think it is, um, First Kings. Um, so I have that spirit doubled. Um, and so he takes over as the disciple he takes over when his master leaves. What Cooley is saying is, I'm like Elisha to your Elijah, except that I only have, your, I only have half your spirit, not doubled. Um, so that's, that's an obscure illusion. He's trying to control. He wants the illusion, but he's trying to control the parts of it that are too um, boastful. Um, but he really wants the parentheses. I whom thou once did prove so humble to esteem, so good to love, you once... Um, told me you liked my poetry, and I'm just so happy about that. I ask but half thy mighty spirit for me, and when my muse soars with so strong a wing, twill learn of things divine. 
and first of thee to see. So if I ever could write as well as you, what I would write about is you. Um, so again, the thing to notice here is the extent to which um, there's a theory of two kinds of poetry here. Religious poetry, which is for everyone. That is, he's singing about things we all can and should agree on or learn from through what he's writing. And then there's secular poetry, which is what most poetry is, and which is about the personal experience, the unique experience of each poet. And that distinction is a distinction um, which is partly also a distinction between Protestantism and Catholicism. That is to say that Protestantism is about individual experience. Um, and Catholicism is, to, is much more about group experience. Um, on the other hand, it's also the case, or maybe it's not on the other hand, maybe this is, this is uh, more of the same. Um, the Catholicism is really about the body, uh, much more than Protestantism is. Um, Catholic poetry, Catholic iconography, the reason uh, Protestantism is against images is that they're external and body, they're about the body and not about the mind, not about the soul. Um, what Protestantism is claiming is that it's about the individual experience of what's hidden within the individual, the mind or soul that can never be seen on the outside. And it's mental experience that matters, not physical experience. You will see this in Paradise Lost, that um, all the beauty and all the pain that people experience in Paradise Lost, and there's tons of both, are trivial compared to the mental battle that's going on. And that's really important for Milton. Milton was blind, and he says, it's terrible to be blind, and yet it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's what's inward that matters, not your relation to the external world, but what's inside that matters. Um, seeing with the mind, seeing with the imagination, is much more important than seeing with the bodily eye, he will say. Um, and so it's kind of, there's a kind of ferocious, anti-sensual element in a lot of Protestantism, anti-pleasure in a lot of Protestantism. And that's what you see in Cooley's poem. Um, what he's essentially saying is, look at all these subjects that poets took. As their subject, they're all pleasures. They're all experiences of pleasure. They're all heathen. They're all wrong. And even though he's praising a Catholic poet here, he's doing it for Protestant reasons by saying that they have to do with the divine. Now, to get a sense of Crashaw and his metaphysical relationship to the body, just look. I want us to spend at least 10 minutes on um, Suckling and um, uh, Loveless, or, or a little bit, I hope. But if you look at, uh, what's Crashaw, the 550s? Um, 
Oh, page 580. No, problem 580. There's a particular... 502? Page 502? Yes. Thank you. Look at the problem, page 506. That's what I wanted. Um, Upon the body of our blessed Lord, naked and bloody... They've left thee naked, Lord. Oh, that they had. So he changes his mind in the first line. They've left thee naked, Lord. And then he says, actually, they haven't. Oh, I wish they had. Oh, that they had. Why? Do you remember? Turns out he's not naked. What's he clothed in? His blood. This garment too, this garment too, I would they had denied. Thee with thyself they have too richly clad. Opening the purple wardrobe in thy side. Um, so he's too richly clad with himself. You should feel the sheer bodily, visceral yuckiness of that. Um, that's something that could almost be in the silence of the lambs. Um, it's what Billy Rubin plans to do in The Silence of the Lambs. Um, they've left thee naked, Lord. Oh, that they had this garment too, I would they had denied. Thee with thyself, they have too richly clad. How is he too richly clad with himself? He's covered with his own blood and gore. Opening the purple wardrobe in thy side. What does that mean? Yeah, so the spear in the side. Um, is a purple wardrobe. What's a wardrobe? A closet. So a closet full of purple clothes. Which is his blood, yeah. So there you were, and they opened the closet in your side and took out all the purple clothes that were in that closet and covered you with it. So you're not naked at all. I wish you were. Oh, never could there be garment too good for thee to wear but this of thine own blood. So your blood is even better than you are. Um, you shouldn't be wearing it, or at least it's a garment too good for you, um, which is really hard to believe, except that the blood is more important than the skin, even in Jesus. But yeah, that's quite a yucky little conceit there. Um, powerful might be another word for it. Visceral, um, strong conceit. Um, and um, so dressed in his own blood, um, Jesus is not naked. Oh, if only he were. Um, yeah, it's, it's too bad that we can't spend more time on, on uh, some of these other poems. But at any rate, that's typical of what those who don't like metaphysical poetry don't like about it, um, that poem. Do you guys like it? Do you think it's good, bad, um, impressive, but impressive, but impressive, and yeah? I think it's a really powerful metaphor that you created. Uh huh. It's really gross to think about. Yeah, and is that a bug or a feature that it's gross? I mean, I think it's powerful, and I 
Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, I think that's a good answer. Um, yeah. Um, growing up, going to Catholic school my entire life, this is not <laughs> not the most scarring thing I've ever. No, heard. I know. Um, so for me, it's not it's not very like it's visceral, but it's it's not overwhelming for me. It, it's a very beautiful way to put something that's so terrible. Okay, that's good. That's great. Um, so that would be, yeah, what people who um, are, find this powerful, you know, what someone like Cooley would find in it is, um, well, to quote Yeats, a terrible beauty. Um, so, yeah, that's great. Um, all right, let's look, uh, since we have a few minutes, let's look at um, Suckling. Do you want to look at Suckling or Loveless? Let's start with Suckling. Um, Loveless, you all noted the famous lines, right? Stud walls did not a prison make. Yeah. Um, there's also that amazing poem, Who Can Love a Marmoset? Um, nothing but bone, bone. Um, but let's, let's look at um, Suckling. If you go to page 472, um, here's a song called Love's Offense. This is poem 552. If when Don Cupid's dart doth wound a heart, we hide our grief and shun relief, the smart increaseth on that score for wounds unsearched but rankle more. So what does that mean? Yeah. When we fall in love, usually we try and keep quiet about it, but it makes it worse because not doing anything about a wound makes it get worse. Yeah. So, so it's a good psychological insight that... You fall in love, um, Don Cupid, Lord Cupid strikes you, you fall in love, you hide, but you hide your grief, and it just becomes worse. Then if we whine, look pale, and tell our tale, men are in pain for us again. So neither speaking doth become the lover's state, nor being dumb. So if we say, oh God, I'm just so in love, I'm so in love, I'm so in love, people either feel sorry for us or they want us to shut up. <laughs> um, so if you fall in love, you can either keep it to yourself and you'll be miserable, or you can tell other people and you'll make a fool of yourself and be miserable. Um, so we need to find a metaphysical conceit to explain how this works. <laughs> when this I do descry, then thus think I. Love is the fart of every heart. It pains a man when tis kept close, and others does offend when tis let loose. <laughs> So <laughs> next time you're feeling melancholy, <laughs> I suggest this poem to you. Love is the fart of every heart. You can take that to the bank. Um, and the poem that comes right after that, it's um, A Summons to Town. Uh, that's in the same mode as, you, as, as the poem even suggests, as um, Johnson's Inviting a Friend to Supper. Um, so he's writing a friend of his and saying, come to town. Um, don't stay out in that boring country. Um, Sir, whether these lines do find you out, putting or clearing off a doubt, whether predestination or reconciling three in one, or the unriddling how men die and live at once eternally now take you up. So you're getting this letter, and if when you get it, you're thinking about these deep theological issues. Predestination is what? Or predestination is what? Yeah. Um, that 
as soon as you're born, like God already had a plan for whether your soul is going to go to heaven or to hell? Yeah, so there's nothing you can do about it. So that would be, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough nut for a lot of people to crack if they believe in it. Um, or reconciling three in one. The Trinity, yeah. So if you're thinking about these theological issues, or the unriddling how men die and live at once <coughs> eternally. So you die, but you're immediately in heaven. How does that work? Um, if these things now take you up, no, tis decreed, you straight bestride the college steed, leave Socinus and the schoolmen, which Jack Bond swears do but fool men, so leave all the scholastic philosophers, um, get on your um, horse and leave reading Socinus, who was um, one of the founders of, of um, Unitarianism, actually. Um, leave these philosophers. Um, all they do is fool men, as my friend Jack says, and come to town. Tis fit you know yourself abroad. Then men, tis fit you show yourself abroad that men may know, whate'er some learned men have, learned men have guessed, that oracles are not yet ceased. Um, and we already talked about the cessation of the oracles. So that's the thing that um, Cooley refers to when he says, even though the oracle ceased, um, it turns out that the, the Greek, the pagan gods are still at work. Um, Come to town, he says. There you shall find the wit and wine flowing alike in both divine. Dishes with names not known in books and lest amongst the college cooks. Um, so leave college, come to town. Um, you won't find food like this in the Stein. Um, with sauce so pregnant that you need not stay till hunger bids you feed. And here's what else, the other fun you can have, the sweat of learned Johnson's brain and gentle Shakespeare's easier strain. A hackney coach conveys you to, in spite of all that rain can do. So you can go see the theater. You can see Johnson and Shakespeare on stage. Just take a, a cab, a hackney coach, and go to the plays. What fun. And for your 18 pence, you set the lord and judge of all fresh wit. News in one day as much weave here as serves all Windsor for a year. So there you are in Windsor, you know, um, what is it, 20 miles outside of London. And we get more news every day than you get in a year at Windsor. Um, that's where Eaton College is. I think that's, I'm almost certain that's what he's referring to. Um, and which the carrier brings to you when you even get the news that we get every day, when you finally get it at Windsor, and which the carrier brings <coughs> to you after it's here been found not true. So we get this great news. It's so much fun. We know it before you. And by the time you hear it, we found out it's not true. So it's kind of the 17th century version of Fox News. <laughs> then think what companies designed to meet you here. Men so refined, their very common talk at board makes wise or mad a young court lord and makes him capable to be umpire in his father's company. So you'll learn lots of stuff which will make you able to correct your father. Where no disputes nor forced defense of a man's person for his sense take up the time. All strive to be masters of truth as victory and where you come, I'll boldly swear a synod might as easily err. So um, this really is a better place to be than at school. Um, it's vacation time, or it's about to be. So you should go enjoy it. Bestride your steed and leave college, at least for next week, and have fun. Um, anyone, does anyone have any papers for me? I don't have them all yet. If you don't, email me. 
um, when you're done. Okay, have a good break. Thank you.